Jesus Christ is our living hope, isn't he? He is resurrected from the grave. He is alive. He is alive right now, today, seated at the right hand of God. We have a Savior who lives, a Savior who is one day returning for us. One day that sky will break open, won't it? And Jesus Christ will appear and he will call us home to eternal life. The eternal life that he earned in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. As we approach Easter Sunday, I wanted to take a few Sundays and just focus on that theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today I want to look together with you at a passage in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. And this passage is one of the earliest moments in the ministry of Jesus in which he gives a prediction about the fact that he will rise again from the dead. He gives it somewhat enigmatically, somewhat in a mysterious form, because he gives it in the form of a sign, in the form of a, a type between him and an Old Testament character by the name of Jonah. And I think there's much that Jesus intends for us to understand in this relationship that he establishes between him and the story and the life and the ministry of Jonah. And I want us to focus on this passage as we think on the resurrection of Christ. And our focus today is on verses 38 to 42. The passage says that then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came into the world to declare you, to reveal you, our God, our Father, to us. Father, we thank you for the light that Jesus provides to us who believe. We thank you for the life that Jesus provides to us who believe. Lord, help us to see from this passage today uh, the significance of Jesus' ministry, his death, his resurrection, as he associates it with your prophet Jonah of long ago. Lord, bless this time and may your spirit teach us and apply your word. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. One of the things that I think is helpful for us in interpreting scripture is to think about 
the ways that the original audience would have understood it when they heard it, when they read it. And when the people of Israel, when the Pharisees and the scribes and the the teachers of the law, when they heard Jesus respond to them here in Matthew chapter 12, and, and Jesus brings up the specific connection between him and Jonah, I think it's important for us to, to understand that, that in the ancient world and, and in really in Jewish understanding and Jewish interpretation, and really, as we can see this, even in the, the writings of the New Testament authors, that, that when they quote from or when they refer to a specific portion of the Old Testament, that they also have in view what we might call a, a peripheral vision. You know, peripheral vision is where you see not only what you're focusing on, but you see what's around it, right? So, so you kind of see the context in which that thing that you're focusing on is found. And, and when Jesus refers to Jonah here, he makes the direct connection to the three days and three nights that Jonah spent in the fish in the sea. But around that specific connection, we have the peripheral story, right, of Jonah. So we have, I think, some even, even some other connections between Jonah and Jesus that perhaps Jesus wants us to understand, and Matthew wants us to understand by including this story in his gospel. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's essentially setting up a, a typological relationship between Jonah and himself. A type in scripture is where we see specific connections or associations between previous people in the Bible or previous events in the Bible and then later fulfilled in a similar but yet in a higher way, specifically in Jesus Christ. And so, for example, we might say that uh, King David is a type of Jesus in the sense that, that David was a king and David ruled righteously over the throne of, of Israel. Certainly not perfect, certainly had his flaws, but David was a righteous king, a man after God's own heart, and he was one whom God had anointed and appointed to rule over Israel. Later on in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is referred to as the son of David, someone who will come and who will reign on David's throne in the likeness of David. And yet, so we see connections between David and Jesus, but yet Jesus takes it to a higher level, doesn't he? So, so Jesus takes it to a level of perfection of righteousness and justice in his rule and his reign that David never could. So that's the idea of a type. There are connections, similarities, but then Jesus takes it to a, a higher, more ultimate level and a level of fulfillment in which these types point to and are ultimately fulfilled, find their culmination in Jesus. I think Jesus is doing something like that here with the prophet Jonah. So he wants us to see some connections between Jonah's life and his own ministry. And so I want to share, I think, what some of those connections might be that that Jesus wants us to see in his reference to Jonah here. One is, like Jonah, Jesus was a prophet of God, proclaiming the message of God. That is a, a similar connection, isn't it? Jonah was a prophet. He was someone appointed by God, called by God to deliver a message that God gave him. 
we see that connection fulfilled in Jesus Christ because there is no greater prophet than Jesus, is there? Now, when I say that Jesus is a prophet like Jonah, I'm not saying that that's all that Jesus is. Jesus is much more than that, isn't he? But in that connection, he is like Jonah. He is a prophet, someone called by God to deliver the message of God. And no one greater delivered the truth and the message of God than Jesus of Nazareth. And so he is like Jonah in that sense. He is a prophet proclaiming God's message. Also, like Jonah, Jesus was called as a prophet during a time of great Israelite unbelief. Like Jonah, Jesus was a prophet called during a time of great Israelite unbelief. Listen to this from 2 Kings chapter 14. By the way, this is the only place I believe that I could find. This is the only place outside of the book of Jonah where the prophet Jonah is mentioned. In 2 Kings 14, 23 to 27, and it gives us some historical context to the ministry of Jonah. It says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And now here's the context in which Jonah ministered. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. And so here we see the context in which Jonah ministered. He ministered during the years of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, and he was an evil king. What kind of evil was Jeroboam responsible for spreading in Israel? Well, probably like many of the kings of Israel in that day, he was responsible for spreading idolatry, false worship, Baal worship, uh, worship of the other Canaanite gods. Child sacrifice was often associated with these false forms of Canaanite worship. Despicable acts, immoral acts associated with this false worship. He was, the, he was a wicked king. That is the context in which Jonah ministered. And Jonah was a prophet from the northern kingdom. So imagine being a prophet called by God to minister to a people steeped in wickedness and idolatry and paganness. Sometimes we think of Jonah and the only thing that we think of is what we read in the book of Jonah, right? We, we think of that one event, that one instance in his life where he was called by God to go to Nineveh and he ran. But think about the fact that from 2 Kings, we know that he was a prophet to the northern kingdom. We don't, we don't know anything else about what he said. We don't know anything else about what he preached, what he might have prophesied. But we know that he was a prophet called by God to the northern kingdom, and he was called to a people that did not receive him. A people that rejected his ministry because they were a people who remained in paganness, idolatry, and unbelief. Think about Jesus now. Jesus comes to Israel, right? He comes to Israel. He comes to Galilee. He comes to his own town in Nazareth. And what happens when Jesus shows up in Nazareth to his own people? 
they don't believe. They don't believe. What is the what does the writer John tell us in John chapter one? He came unto his own and his own what? Received him not. Like Jonah, Jesus was a prophet called largely to an unbelieving Israel. To a people that did not receive him and did not believe. We can even see some of that unbelief here in verse 38 in the context where it says that the whole thing that brought this up was a challenge by the Pharisees and the scribes for Jesus to perform a sign for them. Now, think about the fact that up until this point in the flow of Jesus' ministry and in the flow of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has performed countless signs and wonders, hasn't he? He's already performed many miracles. In fact, earlier in Matthew chapter 12, we see that Jesus frees a man from an evil spirit who is demon-possessed and who is blind and mute because of this demon possession. And the religious teachers of the day make the astonishingly blasphemous claim that Jesus is casting out demons in the power of Satan himself. And now they have the audacity to ask Jesus for another sign. They didn't really need another sign, did they? They had a sign. They had many signs, miraculous signs, and they wrongly, even blasphemously, attributed them to the devil. But now they want more. They want additional signs. It's a sign of their unbelief, isn't it? It's a sign of their unbelief, their hard-heartedness, that they're not willing to accept God's anointed one, the Messiah, who is standing right in front of them. Don Carson, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, still trying to come to grips with who Jesus was, but unable and unwilling to bend their own presuppositions to the revelation that Jesus brought, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked him to present some authenticating miraculous sign. In one sense, of course, they were within their rights as leaders of the people to challenge the claims of all messianic pretenders, But Jesus saw their problem was, in this case, far deeper. After all, he had performed scores, perhaps hundreds, of miraculous signs, each one attesting to the spectacular inbreaking of the kingdom's power. Clearly, what they wanted was something different. They were demanding a miraculous sign performed on demand, a sort of showpiece attestation. But that would have been a domestication of God's saving reign. It would have signified a use of God's power in subservience to the ruling authorities. The power of the kingdom was not available for whimsical display, and Jesus was not a trained seal happy to do tricks on cue. In that sense, therefore, no sign would be given to a generation sunk in spiritual adultery. Jesus saw their hard-heartedness, didn't he? He saw their rebelliousness. He saw their stubbornness. And that's why he says his response to them is, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. He saw their unbelief. He saw their wickedness. And what's interesting about Jesus' response is he specifically calls them an adulterous generation. Why is that significant? Because in the Old Testament... 
the concept of spiritual adultery was typically associated with idolatry. Idolatry. Think about that. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, the elite of the holy people of Jesus' day, you are guilty of wickedness and spiritual adultery. You think you're worshiping God, but you're really idolaters. That's a powerful charge, isn't it? And yet also in that, he makes a connection to the time of Jonah, doesn't he? Because who is Jonah ministering to if not idolaters? Jesus is coming to people who are unbelieving and who are guilty of spiritual adultery, idolatry. And so, like Jonah, Jesus saw a minimal response to his message among the Israelites. But, like Jonah, he saw an amazingly overwhelming positive response to his message among the Gentiles. You ever noticed in walking through the Gospels that how many times Jesus receives a positive response from the Gentiles? We see the centurion whom Jesus healed his servant. Uh, We see other Gentiles at different places in the Gospels. And it seems like whenever Gentiles pop up in the Gospels, it's because they have faith. It's because they have saving faith in Jesus. Interestingly enough, Jonah, in his ministry, from what we know, he had zero response from the Israelites. But we saw the response of the Ninevites, right? When Jonah went to preach. Jonah went to the city of Nineveh, a city of Gentiles, a city of Assyrians, and he preached a simple message. God's going to destroy this city in 40 days. And they repented. They repented. And so here is Jesus in the midst of a faithless, unbelieving, wicked generation, and they're not receiving him, but whenever Jesus shows up in the midst of Gentiles, it seems they receive him. There's a connection there between Jonah and Jesus' ministries. Like Jonah, Jesus was zealous for the salvation of the Israelites. Like Jonah, Jesus was zealous for the salvation of the Israelites. Now here, we're going to see both a connection and a disconnection. Because both Jonah and Jesus were zealous for the salvation of the Israelites. But here's the difference. Jonah's zeal for the salvation of the Israelites was misguided. It was short-sighted. It was wrong. And it was not in conformity to the will of God. How is Jonah zealous for the salvation of the Israelites? Jonah's zeal, his passion for the salvation of the Israelites was by this means. God, get rid of the Ninevites. Right? Jonah wanted God's people to be delivered from their oppressors. Who were their oppressors? The Assyrians, the Ninevites. So in Jonah's mind, it was misguided, it was short-sighted, and it wasn't in fulfillment of the will of God. But Jonah had a passion for the deliverance of God's people, the Israelites, from their enemies. But in his mind, the method was, don't go preach to the Ninevites. Don't go preach to the Ninevites. They won't respond to the message. They won't repent, and God will destroy them, and Israel will be okay. 
That's why he ran. God says to Jonah, go to the Ninevites and preach to them the message that I give you. And Jonah went the opposite direction, right? He was going to Tarshish. He was going to Spain. Across the Mediterranean Sea, the opposite direction. Why? Because he cared about his people and the Ninevites were their enemies. And he didn't think the Ninevites deserved a chance for repentance. And so in his misguided way, he thought the best way to to deliver Israel is for God to judge their enemies. So don't go preach to them. But that's unlike Jesus, isn't it? Because Jesus has a zeal for the salvation of the Israelites. But Jesus' mission, his purpose is not misguided. It is not short-sighted. It is far-sighted. It is eternity-sighted. And unlike Jonah, Jesus was doing it in fulfillment of the will of God, not in contrary to the will of God. Jonah ran in disobedience to God's will. Jesus comes willingly and fulfills the Father's will. And now here's the irony. Is Jonah thought the best way to save Israel was to destroy the Gentiles? Jesus understands the plan of God. And the plan of God is the best way to save Israel is to save the Gentiles. Isn't that an amazing thought? The best way to save Israel is to save the Gentiles too. And isn't that exactly what Paul says? We just finished it in Romans. Romans chapter 11. Here's God's plan. Israel was hard-hearted. They, were, they refused the message. So where did the gospel go to then? The gospel went to the Gentiles. The Gentiles received it. So that what? So that then God could turn around and arouse some jealousy in Israel and they, their hearts would be softened and they would receive the gospel and be saved. And so in God's amazingly wise plan, there is a turn of events in which hard-hearted Israel leads to the salvation of the Gentiles and then the salvation of the Gentiles in turn leads back to the salvation of Israel. So that Paul can say in Romans eleven twenty six, and so all Israel will be saved. Jonah had it backwards. In order for Israel to be saved, the Gentiles have to be destroyed. Jesus had it right. In order for Israel to be saved, the Gentiles need to be saved. And he came in zeal for salvation, not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And now, like Jonah, and here's the direct connection that Jesus makes, like Jonah, Jesus was miraculously rescued from death after three days. Right? We see that connection. That's the point of symbolism. Jonah was swallowed up by the fish. And whether literally or symbolically, Jonah died. There's, an, there's actually a debate in understanding Jonah, whether or not Jonah actually died and God raised him from the dead. But even if it's just a literary, in a symbolic way, Jonah was rescued from death, wasn't he? So Jonah went into the belly of the earth, literally in a belly of a fish. He was buried like he was dead in the depths. But after three days, he was brought back to life again, if you will. And according to Matthew's understanding and Jesus' understanding of Jonah, that became a sign to the Ninevite people. How is it a sign? We can only assume that here is Jonah showing up in Nineveh, having been spat out from a fish, who is alive, who should be dead, 
But now he's alive and he preaches a message from God and that attests to his genuineness as a prophet of God that God rescued him from death and so they receive his message and they repent. Jesus says, like Jonah, I'm going to spend three days in the belly. I'm going to spend three days in the belly of the earth, but then I'm going to conquer death. I'm going to be rescued from death after three days. And that's the sign that you're going to get. That's the only sign that you're going to get. But how, how good of a sign is that if it's a sign that hasn't happened yet, but it's a sign that's still future? Right? Because here he's, he's foretelling his resurrection, isn't he? He's foretelling his resurrection. Like Jonah, I'm going to be buried, but I'm going to come back to life again like Jonah came back to life again. And that, being rescued from death, is going to be the authentication, the authenticity that I am from God and that I am who I say I am. But how does that help the Pharisees and the scribes and the people listening to Jesus that day? Well, that's the point, is he is putting off the sign for a future time. He's not going to give them what they demand at the moment, but he's putting it off for a future time. And those whose eyes will be opened, those whose hearts will be softened, they will see the resurrected Jesus and they will believe and they will see that that is God's attestation of him as God's messenger, as God's savior, because they'll see the risen Christ. So just like Jonah's resurrection from the dead, if you will, was assigned to the Ninevite people, Jesus' resurrection from the dead will be the ultimate authenticating sign that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. There is no greater authenticity of Jesus' identity as the Messiah and the Son of God than his resurrection from the dead. Nothing greater. So much so that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, there is no faith, right? There is no salvation. We are still in our sins if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. What was the central message of the apostles as they went out to the world? What is the good news, the gospel that they were commissioned to go and preach, but that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried like Jonah, but that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the central message of the apostolic gospel. Like Jonah, he will be raised from the dead. And that will attest to the fact that he is God's sent one, the one that God has commissioned. And so like Jonah, Jesus was miraculously rescued from death after three days. Now, here's the last point. And Jesus brings in this last point in verses 41 and 42 when he says this, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. What is the thing that is greater than Jonah? It's actually a person, isn't it? That which is greater than Jonah, that which is here in your presence right now, is Jesus, the Son of God. 
He is greater than Solomon. He is greater than David. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Abraham. He is greater than all because he is the Son of God. And here is the last message of condemnation that Jesus has for these Pharisees and scribes. When Jonah went to the Ninevites, these pagan, idolatrous, violent people, they heard one message from Jonah and they repented. And Jesus says, when the judgment comes, when that final day of resurrection comes, those people of Nineveh, they're going to be standing on the witness stand and they're going to be testifying against you. They're going to be testifying against you, Israelites, sons of Abraham. They're going to be testifying against you, Pharisees, those knowledgeable of the law of Moses. These pagans of Nineveh who repented at Jonah are going to be testifying against you on the day of judgment because they repented and you have not. The other similarity between Jonah and Jesus is in their message. And that is they both preached a message of repentance and faith of turning to God, didn't they? So what's the response? The response that needs to be to their message is obedience of faith. It is belief. It is turning to God away from ourselves, away from our own dependence of self-righteousness like the Pharisees, away from our own sins toward God and trust in him for salvation. That was what the Ninevites turned to and God had mercy on them. And Jesus implied challenge is what about you? What about you? So let me ask you as we close this morning, Have you set your eyes of faith and turned to the living God and trusted in his resurrected son, Jesus Christ, who spent three days in the belly of the earth, but then was raised again in demonstration of the power of God? Have you turned and set your eyes on him? I pray that you have. Because... One, than, one greater than Jonah has come. And he is the only one now in whom salvation can be found. And praise God, he is alive. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, our God, we thank you that your son Jesus is the one who conquered the grave. He is the one who in advance, predicts that he will go to death and burial, but then to resurrection. And so his sign of resurrection is an even more powerful sign because he predicted it in advance. And it showed and demonstrated that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed your son, your anointed one, our savior, whom you have sent into the world. Father, by your grace, by the movement of your spirit, may we confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord to the glory of God the Father. Save us, Father.
redeem us, rescue us from our sin through the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if there's someone here whose eyes have not turned to Jesus in faith, God, open them. Open their eyes, open their hearts to believe. May they trust in the risen Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.